Welcome to Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. So I left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger last week about why women can't be priests in the Catholic Church. I got some comments that people were sort of shaking their fists at their listening devices. And I'm sorry for the wait, but I promise you it will be worth it. Because today, we're continuing our conversation with Father Sawicki, picking up right where we left off last week. We're finally going to answer the question about why women can't be priests, as well as dive into the infallibility of the Bible, apocryphal texts, and the difference between being good versus being saved. Check it out. So, like, for instance, in a lot of other non-Catholic churches, there are women as pastors or leaders of their church family, but there are none in the Catholic church, like no women as priests or bishops or anything like that, which leads people who are not Catholic to an argument that the Catholic church is against women, which we know is not true. But for argument's sake, why can't women be priests? That's a pertinent question, and it's something that is going to stay pertinent for as long as I'm alive. And that's, you know, hopefully many more decades, I pray. But it's a reality because we're in this, we're in an environment where we think that uh, positions equal authority, positions uh, and and glass ceilings and stained glass ceilings and whatnot. I worked closely with a, in one of my previous assignments, with a lady who was a, a campus minister and a former Lutheran pastor. And she was a committed Lutheran pastor. And then she she came to the point, she said, I had to become Catholic because I knew that this is what the church, what Jesus wanted of me in his prayer that we all be one. And we said, well, how would you talk about what you did as a Lutheran pastor and, you know, women's ordination, for instance? And she said, I knew I was a minister of the gospel, but I knew I was not standing in the person of Christ because I was a woman. And even as a Lutheran, she it was a it was not ordination in the same sense as the Catholics practice ordination that you're made another Christ, an alter Christus, okay, that you're able to act in the person of Christ. What Luther started in fifteen seventeen with the Protestant Reformation in Germany was that they were ministers of the gospel because there was uh, a separation from faith and from, and kind of basically it was a separation from an incarnational type of religion. You know, it was, everything was an exa- a, a expression of faith, not faith uh, incarnate in this fallen, sinful world. Okay, and that's where the famous anecdote was that Luther looked at the human person as a dunghill covered in snow, as the, the, the corrupt human person covered with the grace of Jesus Christ. And so they would say, you can't be ontologically changed, that your soul is configured to the Christ, because Christ would never do something with so utterly corrupt. 
Now, modern day Lutherans might not take that take that direct teaching, but strict Calvinists would. Okay, so that that was a helpful for me to understand how even some Protestants, Protestant Christians, saw ordination and and uh, quote ministerial ministry. Okay, ultimately, what John Paul II. St. John Paul II definitely, definitively taught was that the church didn't have the authority to ordain women because Christ himself didn't ordain women. Right. Now, people will say, well, Jesus was bound by social convention. He couldn't choose women as leaders because this would have been totally uh, against first century Palestinian mores. When, since when did Jesus, was Jesus bound by social convention in anything that he did? My goodness, he speaks to a, a Samaritan woman alone at the well. You know, he goes and uh, lifts up uh, Samaritans as the, as being good, as as opposed to the priests and Levites. He hung out with tax collectors. Uh, tax collectors and sinners. I mean, uh, cavorted with, you know, people who knew how to have a good time. They were called drunkards. Since when is Jesus bound by social convention? And and Mary, of all the, the first of all the disciples, she wasn't, there's no evidence that she was, you know, or, or ever ordained as as one of the 12 were. So there's the example of Jesus that we have to follow. And then there's the constant practice of the church. Now, there's a problem sometimes in the church in the current moment where just because someone's ordained doesn't mean they're the smartest person in the room with either even things theological. Like, I'm not an expert in biomedical ethics. I got to call someone. I get one of those humdinger questions. It's like, oh my gosh, what's the moral thing to do? Because this is a little, this is complicated and my mind doesn't, isn't, so I have to call up someone, and I, I think that, and this is what our, our Holy Father Pope Francis is trying to convey in getting like getting the practice across that we have to engage the entire Christian faithful and give them maybe not governance, which is tied to the ordination of bishops. Bishops, we believe, have this charism of governance in the church, but that we have to find these people in the church and make sure that they are listened to, that that whole um, synodal um, synod on synodality, to understand what does it mean that we draw these people together? You know, we priests are not, there, there could be priests who are excellent educators and administrators, but just because you're a priest doesn't mean that you should have the final say when it comes to curriculum changes in in a school, for instance, moral theology, scripture. Some of the, I mean, I might have had one priest, scripture professor, the the most brilliant scripture professor when I was at Mount St. Mary's Seminary was a consecrated virgin, Sister Joan Gormley, God rest her. I mean, she was just absolutely brilliant. And anybody who says that women don't have a say in the church, I don't think are as closely intimately involved in the life of the church. I think that they really do. Uh, when push comes to when push comes to really shove, or when you really see how decisions are made, that they are active in the life of the church in our in our own diocese, and I think in theologians engaged on the universal level in the Holy See, that there are those female theologians. So I mean, w- women are not excluded; they're not ordained, but that doesn't mean that they don't have. A voice. It doesn't mean that they don't have authority. Now, if authority is you do whatever you want to do, well, nobody has that authority in the church because we still have the, the teachings that Christ handed on to us that we have to be faithful to. So again, sometimes people say, well, we want authority so we can change things the way we want them. Well, 
when we cease to become Catholic because we abandon what's been handed on to us. It's important, like what St. Paul said, I receive from the Lord what I also handed on to you. Now, he was speaking about the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist, but that's the entire tradition of the Church. We have to hand on what's been handed on to us and not just mold it after our own whims and fancies in any given age. You're absolutely right. And I had had um, Samantha Pavlock, she's the editor-in-chief of this publication called Femme Catholic, and we were talking about the stance of, oh, the church is anti-women. And she's like, have you seen some of our saints? You know, <laughs> we have female doctors of the church. Like you, like you said, female theologians. Mother Teresa was this incredible <laughs> business. Like she ran a multi-million dollar organization while also being, you know, this incredible figure mm-hmm. for the church. So they, uh, they obviously don't quite understand how powerful and impactful women can be. They don't have to be priests to have an impact. You, you know, um, this is an anecdote that Monsignor Bill King told me over 10 years ago. He had to testify to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives because they were talking about the possibility of unionizing Catholic elementary schools. And it would have, it, it couldn't be done because our Catholic elementary schools are not set up the same way as school districts. They're right. ministries of parishes. It, it's it's apples and oranges. But he began his speech at the Pennsylvania legislature by saying, uh, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, if any of you think the Catholic Church has no experience with organized labor, you've never talked to one of our old pastors who had to negotiate with Mother Superior the service of nuns in the convents and schools. <laughs> and it was a labor union. <laughs> I mean, it was. I, but but I, I think of the, the, these religious sisters in my life who ministered in the name of, they're powerful, trusted, and authoritative figures doesn't mean that they craft doctrine and church discipline. And no priest or bishop should do that. We have to hand on what's been received, okay? But, I mean, they've been so influential. I mean, I'm a, I'm a priest. I entered the seminary when I did because Sister Rita O'Leary said to Father Rosman, with Sawicki, it's not a question of if, but when he enters seminary. And I said, she's right. I'd admit defeat. I'm going to enter seminary. I wish it were all that easy, but they're not. <laughs> So we've talked a lot about the differences of, of being Catholic versus just being Christian um, and some of the the practices, but there's a phrase of uh, someone being a practicing Catholic versus being a lapsed Catholic. What constitutes being a practicing Catholic? I'm going to say this. I don't think it's impossibly high to be a practicing Catholic. We don't really have that, I want to say, high of standards. I'm going to re- reference the Knights of Columbus, this wonderful international Catholic men's group uh, based in the United States and founded by uh, Blessed Michael McGivney. To be a member of the Knights of Columbus, you have to be a practical Catholic. Now, he founded the Knights of Columbus for Catholic, mostly Irish Catholic working men. Did they have to be saints? No. They had to be practical Catholics to practice their faith insofar as they could. So if you're a practical Catholic and you're a, and again, I, I, I wish we were all saints. I wish that we all made heroic efforts in service of prayer and of holiness. How does someone do that if they're a husband or a wife with three, four, five kids? And there's been times that I've had to, as a spiritual director or a confessor, hey, your first priority is not to 
be the one to single-handedly run the parish picnic. Maybe you just need to focus on your family right now because that's the most important thing. That's your ordinary growth and holiness. Well, Father, I want to do this. I want to be the best saint possible. Well, focus on the kids and then, you know, raise good disciples and then take that to the next level. What Michael McGivney was dealing with back in the 1880s were railroad workers and mill workers who sometimes had to work seven days a week. If they didn't have that job, they couldn't support their family. What good a Catholic are they if they can't support a family? And people are living in the streets. And so how do I define a practicing Catholic? Do you fulfill your Sunday obligation insofar as you are able? Say someone's a cop and, Father, this is my job. I have to work weekends at times. Bishop Thomas Welsh, who used to be the Bishop of Allentown, relayed the story that his father worked on the railroad, could not attend Sunday Mass, but Monday morning he would attend morning Mass so he could receive the Eucharist once during the week. Did he have to do that? He's dispensed from the Sunday obligation because he had to work. And Bishop Welsh commented, like, if this is good enough for the father of a bishop. It, you know, that's a lot better than being totally isolated and not trying to practice that faith at all. So practicing Catholics, someone who tries practicing the faith in an everyday manner. The church holds out a very low bar. Attendance at the Sunday liturgy. Why is Sunday Mass important? It's more than just being a good person, more than just praying on your own. I think the Sunday celebration or Saturday evening, Sunday evening, it, it holds someone accountable to their Christian way of life. They're surrounded by both saints and sinners. It's a reality check. That way, they, uh, the reception of the Holy Eucharist, if, insofar as they are able, if the, you know, sometimes there's things that perhaps there's a marriage issue and they cannot receive Holy Communion, but being there in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, even if you cannot receive, there's still, I think, power there. That's why we encourage people to make visits into church, you know, whether an adoration chapel or the parish church. Are they praying as a family at home? Try to take, not just compartmentalize one hour dedicated to God, 167 other hours, you know, on a life of profligacy. No, try to per let that permeate your family life throughout the entire week. And so this is how we become saints. Little by little, we're permitting that grace to, to grow within us and then to grow out of us and to affect the people around us and our family and our neighbors. I think that the church also asks people to be supportive of the church and of her mission. And that's not just putting an envelope in. That's an easy thing. You know, it's like, well, how do you know if someone's going to mass or not? You see the envelope, not so you know how much they give, but like, are they actually coming? I'll tell people, like, even if you can't give, I don't know, really know many priests. Now, when people are looking for, you know, Catholic school tuition assistance, you do look like, are you just taking us for a ride to get discounted tuition? There's a reality there. We want to make sure that we're good stewards of what's entrusted to us. But what we want is people to have this living and active faith. What's a practicing Catholic? Are they doing it as a um, organic expression of their faith? Are they permitting it to permeate their lives? Are they receiving the sacraments as, insofar as they are able on a regular basis? Are they contributing to the life and uh, the service of the church? 
again, that's not just monetarily. That's also in what time they give, whether it's, you know, something as simple sometimes as bringing the church bulletin home to an elderly neighbor who can no longer get to Mass so that you check in on them. And then you do that in the name of Jesus. I, I My home parish, uh, there's ladies who prepare meals and they take them to someone who's blind and otherwise cannot cook. And, and I, I've seen, we're driving home, I see someone up, there's Maria taking a meal to so-and-so. And, and I knew what they were doing. And they do that as people in church. I mean, we do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Practicing Catholic is not being a superhero. It's this everyday practice of the faith insofar as they're able. Sometimes you have to, I have to advise older folks, yeah, it was five degrees and three inches of ice. It's okay to have missed Mass this Sunday. Father, I don't like missing. You're 93 years old and you walk to church. I'd rather you stay at home and not fall of a broken hip. Father, I felt guilty. Don't feel guilty. Go home and pray the rosary, you know? <laughs> stay home and pray the rosary. And I, Because I, it literally, it, was da- it would be dangerous. Right. You know, and we, we don't, the church never asks the impossible of, of her parishioners. I'm going to summarize it this way. Harry Connick Jr. apparently was asked, is it true you're a practicing Catholic? And he said, you're darn right I am, and I'm going to keep practicing until I get it right. I like that. And I, I use that all the time when hearing confessions just to encourage people. Listen, we're not looking for perfection. You just have to keep trying. I love that. I love that. Just like you practice medicine, we practice being a Catholic. It's it's not it's not an exact science. I mean, and it is not an exact science because – what what's good for somebody, you know, what's what what's the teaching from Saint Paul? To some are given the gifts of administration, others tongues, others teaching. Now, that's particularly connected to the church's ministers. But all of us, not everybody can has the temperament to be a Sunday school teacher. No one has. Not everybody has the same voice to be a choir member or cantor. Nobody has the leadership skills. Not everybody has the leadership skills of being an usher. Nobody has the organizational skills to be on a parish council. But when we work together, there's that person who's a good, you know, organizational leader. And there's that other person who's like, Father, I don't like getting out in public, but I'm willing to take out the trash and put it in the dumpster at the picnic so that way the picnic grounds stay clean. When you work all together, you have success. My mom, when we were growing up, uh, we lived in we lived in New Jersey before we moved out here. And my mom really wanted to be involved in the church, but my brother and I were both little. So what she would do was she volunteered to wash the cloths that oh. they used for the chalices and cause she liked doing laundry. So she would, she would bring those home and like once a week she would do a load of the cloths and take the, them back to church. Oh, the, the linens. I mean, that's no one sees it, but I mean, without those linens, you can't have mass no. I mean, or you, you could try, but it, it gets really inconvenient, you know, during COVID lockdown. Oh God, help us two and a half years ago, three years ago. I was the Father Brommer said, you know, someone needs to do these these linens now. And I'm thinking, I'll do it. <laughs> it's like, oh, I know how to do it. But I mean, and and it was a learning curve and it's amazing what's out there on YouTube is tutorials. But I mean, that's and and what I bet your mom took great pride in that. She did. And I mean, this is so because especially you know, Christmas and Easter when you have multiple masses, and you look, you open up that drawer. And it's like, okay, well, we're all stocked up. We're ready to go for the mad rush, either the mar- the, the sprint of Christmas or the marathon of, of Holy Week. Uh, that's so important. And if someone's an introvert, 
you know, and that's okay. God works with that too. God works with introverts and extroverts. You know, he's he's given us these temperaments for a reason to use them for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. We talked a little bit about introverts and uh, those people who have a relationship with God. But what if you're someone who reads the Bible and prays regularly, but doesn't go to church? Like, why do we need to go to church if we have the Bible? The Bible is kind of like a user manual. It's not an end in and of itself. It leads us to a deeper relationship with Jesus. And Jesus calls us to have that relationship, not just with him, but with his body on earth, which is the church. And the Sunday celebration, and I say the Sunday celebration, again, knowing that maybe there are people who work on weekends, nurses, whatnot, and they, you know, they can't make the last chance mass. You know, that's the point of connection. That's the point of challenge when you're surrounded by other saints and sinners. The Lord asks us to keep holy the Sabbath day, and in the authority of the church, it interprets that as the Sunday celebration of the Eucharist. Now, in the Eastern Christian churches, sometimes they have Vesper services that could also fulfill a Sunday obligation. In the Latin church, we ask for the celebration of the Eucharist, the Mass. One time, my very first year in seminary, an old Monsignor in Philadelphia gave us the evening day of reflect day of recollection it was an overnight in that evening conference he said you know fellas every night i go over to the church and i kneel down in front of the tabernacle i open the door and i pray to jesus and i look at the blessed sacrament in that tabernacle and i pray and it was just really profound it was really sweet he was a guy mid-70s one of the monsignors me and there were like three monsignors me and her father's me in in philadelphia and the one he's taught and he's praying he's saying to us i pray and it's amazing what your heart opens up to at the end of the day when speaking to the Blessed Sacrament. And it's amazing what he'll say back to you, especially after two Manhattans. And then the entire chapel erupted, okay? And he he added a little bit of humor in there, right? Uh, He he was not drunkenly praying to the Lord. I mean, it's, it's okay to laugh as Catholics, right? But left to our own devices, we can convince ourselves that this is what the Lord asks of us But once we're confronted with the wider church, we realize, oh, maybe this is not what's being asked of me. Because someone could come and say, Father, I believe God is calling me to do this. And then the rest of the community of believers says, well, this is a lousy idea, or this is impractical, or this sounds really good, but we don't know if it's actually as pertinent or helpful as someone may think it is. I think that that's one of the realities of why the church asks for not just personal prayer, which she asks for, but communal prayer, because we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist as a body, and we're trying to move together in that pilgrim, in the pilgrim path to the kingdom. Um, and I th- and I think that that's I, that's how I always say to people like this is why we don't just do this alone. We have to do this in concert with each other, and we do that. That point of reference is the Sunday celebration. That makes a lot of sense that it's not, we're not on a journey by ourselves necessarily. It's 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 a communion. We're in community with the other people in church. But I want to talk a little bit more about the Bible because it's considered a book without error, but it's also like a book of poetry and history and truth it's not just like a total encyclopedia but it's inspired by god and it's written by human hands well 
the Bible may be without error, but humans, we, we are full of error. And if we're in charge of writing what God told us to, how do we know that the Bible is all true and not embellished, especially after it's been copied and translated so many times? That's an excellent question. And one of the problems with the question is we have to put it in the context, especially of Martin Luther in 1517 and the Protestant Reformation. Now, I, we should say this. Remember that Martin Luther was not the first of the reformers. He's the first, that, he's the one that began the Reformation. But there was Jan Hus and John Wycliffe and then um, the other, like the Moravians uh, as a Christian denomination. There, there were pre-Reformation Protestants. They just didn't pick up as much traction. And it was over the question of authority. Who has the authority to interpret the Scriptures? And in the Catholic Church, we say the Church has the authority to interpret Scripture. What really took root with Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli was the individual Christian, just based on the clear meaning of Scripture, that the Scripture itself, its meaning is clear, it interprets itself, except they couldn't agree on what the clear meaning was, which is why you had you ended up with different what they call the magisterial magisterial reformers. You know, you had the Heidelberg Catechism and the Augsburg Catechism as two different expressions in Germany of the magisterial. And then you had the non-magisterial reformers, which was kind of more almost anarchical, with the Anabaptists and other ones that were sweeping through. In, in Europe. And it began because they said, well, every Christian has the ability to interpret Scripture. Well, it's like, I always like say when, when you have an American cult or some kooky sect of Christianity in the United States, and people, people would say, this is just horrible. Why isn't something done about this? I'll say, POD, problems of democracy, separation of church and state. And Protestantism, in a certain sense, is kind of woven into American DNA, okay? And even you know, the founding fathers and some of the first preachers up in New England, like sinners in the hands of an angry God. People might remember this from, you know, fresh uh, junior year American uh, literature in high school, okay? Well, that's kind of in the American DNA and the use of, sometimes the misuse of Scripture to put forth a political agenda, okay? So that question of, you know, how can we trust the Bible kind of is rooted from as an outgrowth of the Protestant Reformation, which made the statement, every Christian can interpret the Scripture on his or her own, because the sense is clear, except if it was clear, you wouldn't have hundreds of variations on this. In the Catholic, the Latin Church in the West, and in the Orthodox or the Eastern Christian churches, in the East, they would say, well, we know what this says from our tradition, which has been handed on to us. And when there's been the points of debate, the council or the authority of the Pope. So, for instance, is Jesus God or is he man? Was he a man who was later lifted up to become united with God in his, in his resurrection and ascension? The Arian heresy, okay, or, um, well, we want, perfect, we want perfect priests, and unless the priest is perfect— uh, the, the sacrament was imperfect and flawed and therefore graceless, which is the Donatist heresy. The church comes together and says, well, this is what the teaching of the church is, and this is how this scripture verse is to be interpreted. And so there's that council as the, uh, as the teaching body. 
and then sometimes the Pope himself who can say, like St. Saint Leo the Great, Pope St. Leo the Great, in this Tome of Leo in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, said, no, this is what we believe about Jesus, true God, true man, human will and the divine will. Two natures, one God, okay? And to, to try to interpret, really, to, this, is the, what the, this is what the authentic Catholic universal teaching is about this. And it's not just based on the whims of, you know, some, you know, say, 19th century American frontiersman who opens up the Bible and combines it with some, you know, superstitious beliefs. And all of a sudden you have a, a international church, you know, pre prepping for the end times. Okay, I'm not going to mention the denomination. People who, who are reading between the lines know where this is coming from. It, it's ultimately what's been the practice of the church over the over the centuries and, and the tradition of the church. And going back to St. Paul, we have to hand on what we've received. That's a really good point. So with the the different councils and the translations and everything with the Bible, I understand that some books were left out and they're referred to as apocryphal texts. Can you talk a little bit about what an apocryphal text is? Like, why were they left out in the first place? And kind of building on what we were just talking about, if it's an infallible book, but we have fallible interpreters, how how are we supposed to trust, if that makes any sense? Like, again, sure. I don't want to sound too deconstructive, but thinking as someone who wasn't sure, born sure. into this. So apocryphal or apocrypha means hidden. When something is apocryphal, and I mean, every place is filled with apocryphal stories. You know, George Washington throwing, was a silver dollar across the Potomac, you know, or honest as it, Abe Lincoln who chopped down the cherry tree. These are apocryphal stories. Did they actually happen or did they not? You know, so that's a, a way that we use that word colloquially. In scripture, we have apocryphal books. The Catholic Church has apocryphal books and the Protestant Church has apocryphal books, but we use them in two different ways. We're going to throw another humdringer word in there called deuterocanonical. Canon means list, deutero means second, and so there's a second list of books. Now, brace yourself, we're in for a ride, all right? So in the early 300s, the church gets together in council, and they say, listen, we all have different scriptures, and the, the church in Alexandria, Egypt, you have your set. The church in Rome has their set. Church in Constantinople, you got your set. Antioch, you got your collection of books. Can we get something that's fairly definitive? And so the New Testament was by and large agreed upon. The Old Testament, there was a problem because there were those Old Testament books that were originally written in Hebrew. Okay, we know that they're old enough to be called authentic. Well, what about the New Te Old Testament books that were originally written in Greek? Well, many of the Jews in those days referenced them, but not all. But we know that Jesus referenced some of those writings, so he'd have a familiarity. So we're going to put those seven books in the Old Testament, which were originally written in Greek, not Hebrew, and we're going to keep them in the Bible, okay? So you have the Old Testament books originally written in Hebrew, the Old Testament books originally written in Greek, all put together. St. Jerome lives in a cave outside of Bethlehem, I think, and he translates them into Latin, which was the vernacular, and says, okay, this is the gold standard. A way to remember the seven books of the Old Testament, J.T. McWeb, Judith, Tobit, Maccabees, Maccabees, Wisdom, Ecclesiastes, Baruch. 
and there's other parts of some other like Daniel, parts of Daniel here and there. Like in the book of Daniel where you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then in the additional part in there, there's Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Those three names are for the same people, but one's referenced as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then the other parts, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. They're the same people. It doesn't shake our faith. It's just one was that what part was the Greek edition. The rest was the, uh, the Hebrew original, okay, the, the Hebrew edition that they were put together. And why were they part in the, uh, why were they in Greek? Well, because the diaspora, the Jews were chased out of the Holy Land in the exile, and a bunch of them were living in Alexandria, and they're forgetting their use of Hebrew, and like, how do we make sure that, you know, they don't forget the scriptures totally? Oh, we got to translate these scriptures into Greek so people could know them, and they could know the law and stay in friendship with God, okay? Well, inspiration didn't stop, and people who didn't know Hebrew recorded it in Greek, all was fine and dandy. Oh, except in the New Testament, some of the Eastern churches have a third and fourth Ephesians, third and fourth Corinthians. It's been a while since I've looked at this. And some Christian communities, like maybe in the, the, the Syriac Christians, they revere them. The rest said, you know, it's doubtful of their authorship because for the New Testament— it had to be written by someone who had a first-hand account of Jesus Christ. It couldn't date after the death of the last apostle because then we're starting to get a question of, you know, is this from a uh, further meditation? Is this from a, a kooky sect, which was combining Zoroastrianism and Christianity? Okay, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, those other apocryphal books. Now... Enter Martin Luther. He wanted to get back to that scripture, and he walked down to the synagogue and said, "Let me see your scrolls," because Luther he he was a Greek expert, and he opens up the scroll and he said, "Hey, J. T. McWeber, not here. This must be an interpolation from from Rome. This this is an invention. So, why do Catholics have seven extra books in the Bible versus Protestant Christians? People say, why did you add books?" That's not the question. The question is, why did Luther take out the books? Because they were in the canon of Scripture for those first 1,400 years, give or take, before they were out. And one of the reasons they say like Luther took it out was because in the book of Maccabees, it speaks about praying for the dead, which Luther did not want to do. He wanted to get rid of that notion of purgatory. So it was very convenient. But the real reason was, see, they're not authentic because they're not originally written in Hebrew. They were originally written in Greek. They weren't authentic. We'd say, no, they were so authentic. So again, look at the constant practice of the church. How do we know they're not embellished? Well, there's a wisdom in bringing the church together in council, whether it's the Second Vatican Council or the Lateran Council or Nicene Councils, that they come together and they have that listening of the Holy Spirit together and say, is this the reflection of what the church believes? Remember, in the Catholic's mindset, the scriptures were placed together because this reflects our faith. This reflects what we believe. It didn't descend from the sky as a completely bound volume and say, okay, now um, th this is what limits, this is what your defining characteristics are. What came first was the church putting forth the collection of books, the Biblia, 
the, the collection of books in, in one volume. What came first was the church. The Bible is the expression of that church's faith, not the other way around, that the Bible came first and then the, the church was built around it. And that's the Catholic mindset. And ultimately, again, there's that authority with the bishops in communion with the, the successor of St. Peter and, and all the Christian faithful who will receive it as a treasure. So some of the higher church Protestant churches will re- reference those seven other books that we hold as part of the ordinary canon, but they'll call it the deuterocanonical. They won't call it apocryphal. If you say it's apocryphal, it kind of is a pejorative mentality to it. But if they say it's deuterocanonical, well, it's a second canon. Uh, we'll, we'll respect them, but they're not our primary source of reference. Whereas in the Catholic Church, it's like, listen, it's all canonical. It is or it isn't. That's fascinating. I, I'm kind of a sucker for, for historical things like that. It, it just always just blows my mind, like what goes into it. And then you, you hear all these podcasts or even conspiracy theorists about like why it was left out. And no, when you, when you break it down that way, it's just like, it, we're just following history. Like this is how it went. And this is why we did it. Kind of building off that just a, a little bit. There are so many different versions of the Bible. Even now, like if you were to walk into a bookstore, you would see like the King James version right. versus like all the all the different letter new inter- versions. New now. International Version, North American Bible, Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic right. Edition. Like, so which one? Like, if if you were to walk into a bookstore right now, as as someone who was considering becoming Catholic, or even somebody who's coming back to being Catholic, which one should they pick up? If they want to follow along with the Sunday readings in the Catholic Church. The St. Joseph edition of the New, uh, New American Bible is what we typically use for the proclamation of the word on celebration of Mass. In the olden days, like when my parents were in, my dad was in Catholic school, they had the old Catechism of the Catholic Church, St. Joseph Bible, which was a variation of the Dewey Rames Bible, which was had these and thous written in, translated in France, because you couldn't have English Catholicism in English in England. So those English Catholics were in Douai, the College of Douai, near Reims, France. Okay, so you had the Douai Reims. It got a little bit archaic language. These and thous can cause people to stumble at times. And so they said, well, let's translate this into a vernacular that people can hear. This is one of the problems of Scripture translation. There's translations which are good when they're proclaimed audibly, And then there's ones that are good that if you're sitting there studying, okay, in your own prayer and in your own scripture study. So the St. Joseph edition makes a very nice bound volume to give as a gift for your kid who's about to get confirmed or first communion or graduate from high school or something like that. The Catholic study Bible has lots of notes. Like you say, well, what is this? This is really weird. And then at the bottom, they're really thick because there's a lot of notes at the bottom explaining what this means or where this teaching comes from. There's the Didache Bible. Now, the Didache Bible is put forth, oh, maybe Midwest Theological Forum, um, and it's a green book where it has the, the Bible, and I think it's in the Revised Standard Version. Now, what's the Revised Standard Version? Uh, personally, I bounced between New American Bible and the Revised Standard Version, just because when I was at St. Charles in Philadelphia, the the house Bible to use for study was a New American Bible, because that's the translation that's used in the liturgy and put forth by the United States Council of Catholic Bishops. The Revised Standard Version was the one that we were recommended to use at Mount St. Mary's, because some of the end notes 
the Revised Standard Version is a revision of the authorized version, also known as the King James Version. But then, so in England, they were doing this back maybe the 19th century. They're trying to revise the English version and bring it into words that we'll use in a more modern context. And then in England, they got together and said, well, listen, can Catholics have input on this? So that way, you know, an easy one, a, a, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Catholics believe Mary is ever virgin. Other people say, well, no, it's a young, a young, a young woman would conceive and bear a son. So there are people who would get bent out of shape about that. The Catholics would say, well, let's just use virgin because that's been the constant practice of how to translate, render this word, because that scroll of Isaiah was originally written in Hebrew and they use young woman. But then when it was translated into the Greek, the next step it was translated as virgin because that's the way it was translated. That was the Greek word that was used, not another young woman. Okay, so that, this is how like some people, they want to downplay the importance of Mary. They're just going to call her young woman rather than virgin. Or hail full of grace verse in Luke's gospel versus hail highly favored one. Well, full of grace, kekari tomene, this is like, we'd say this is a recognition of Mary's immaculate conception. Other people say, well, we don't believe that, so we're just going to call her a favored one. So this is where we want to have that, what's conveying the faith of the church in its constant 2,000-year practice, okay? I don't want to get, I, I'm afraid I'm getting too much in the woods for the listeners, but I hope that they're following this. And this is where that debate, and then you want something that when you read it aloud, it makes sense to people who are trying to listen to it, because you know, the scripture, the scripture proclamation on Sunday is not a Bible study. It is a liturgical offering to God that we're offering even the word that's been written. So th this is where we debate over this. And even at St. Saint, Saint Charles and Mount St. Mary's, two seminaries that we used back in my time in seminary, they had, these are the ones we reference. But if you want to use the Jerusalem Bible, my, one of my scripture professors who was from Ireland, Father Tommy Lane, he said, I like the Jerusalem Bible because I think it's more poetic. Psalms, this is one of the problems. There's the lectionary psalm that many people sing, and they're not as poetic when you use the Grail Psalter, uh, and that's the title of the translation. That They were translated in order to be more poetic and singable, you know, so that there's a pace in the poetry. They're, because the psalms were originally written in Hebrew, and if you translate them literally... It's kind of clunky. Like there's idiomatic sayings in Spanish that don't really translate in English and vice versa. This past Christmas, we were preparing a worship aid for our midnight mass in Steelton where we have Croatian uh, kolendi, Christmas carols. And there was the debate, do we translate it literally or poetically? Because one, when it translates Literally, it gets clunkier when you translate it poetically. It doesn't exactly say the same thing, but isn't singing something meant to be poetic? So anyway, so this is one of the problems when looking for a version. Are you looking for this for person to, to follow along with the Sunday readings to bring your Bible to church? New American Bible in the United States. If you're looking at it for personal study, get good, one with really good endnotes. The DDK Bible, it's a little bit more expensive, but they combine the readings with the Catechism of the Catholic Church quotes. Where what like a, a cross reference? If if you're looking for a beautifully poetic one, the Jerusalem Bible, 
or maybe even the Revised Standard Version, um, like the Ignatius Bible, Ignatius Press out of San Francisco uses the Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic, Second Catholic, RSV 2CE. <laughs> so, and I mean, it's okay. Like, you, the problem is you get into like other Bibles like The Way. Um, and what they wanted to do was make it very accessible, but then you lose thing, you lose some translations, and they're meant to be dynamic equivalent. Um, so instead of hail full of grace, the Lord is with you. Hail favored one, you're blessed by God. I don't know if that's the way it's done. Okay, but they're trying to get across what, you know, this is, this is the challenge of scripture studies. And if you've ever said, do Catholics read the Bible literally? We believe we do. Because a literal reading of Bible, the, the scriptures is, we're trying to read it in the way the author intended it to be written. St. Paul was writing instruction. Luke, in the Acts of the Apostles, was writing a historical narrative. This is what happened. John was writing a theological reflection on the life of Jesus. And so when people say, there's two different accounts of the Passion, and, and they didn't even agree with each other. Well, what did, what did the author intend to write? That's what it means to read it literally. What did they intend to write? Not literally as in, this is the meaning of the word, and we follow it in the fundamentalist Christian mindset. Sometimes we have to do that, okay? Don't even ask about the book of Revelation. That's just going to get people <laughs> apoplectic, you know? Yes. Yes, Psalms is one of my favorite. Revelations is not so much one of my favorites, but we talked about this, you know, just building off of it. Another super important book in our faith is the Catechism. Can you talk a little bit about what is the Catechism of the Catholic Church? Like, when I think of it initially, it's I feel like it's misinterpreted as just a book of rules or just like an encyclopedia that we use for reference. Like, this is why we do it this way kind of thing. Could you expand on what it is and what it isn't? The Catechism of the Catholic Church was promulgated by Pope St. John Paul II back in, I think it was like 93 or 94, 1993 or 94. And really, it's a, it's a hallmark of, uh, or one of the most beautiful products of the then Cardinal Ratzinger, our recently deceased Pope Benedict XVI. There was debate on, should the church have a catechism? The last, now, people are going to say, I had the Baltimore Catechism. I grew up with the Baltimore Catechism. What was wrong with that? Two different things, apples and oranges. The church's universal catechism is different than local catechisms. So the last catechism before the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1993 or 4 was the Roman Catechism of the Council of Trent back in the 16th century. And that was an official book said, this is what we believe. And in the old Catechism of the Council of Trent, the, the Roman Catechism, it was, and if you believe anything other than this, anathema sit. Okay, let, let you be condemned. This is, this is what we believe and let you be condemned. And in trying to embrace a modern world, and also, I mean, there, there were some other doctrinal developments in understandings, whether it's papal infallibility of the 19th century and the Immaculate Conception Declaration, Assumption Declaration, uh, the collapse of monarchies everywhere, and how do we deal as Catholics in a moral life in you know, democratic societies, okay, we needed a new point of reference, okay? There are 
then there are those folks who think like, well, what was wrong with the Baltimore Catechism? I can't, I could teach my kids with the little Baltimore Catechism, one, two, and three volumes, and this big green one, it's too expensive and they don't understand it. The green book is not meant to be a textbook. It was meant to be the gold standard on which national catechisms would be based. And we did that. There's the red book, the Catechism for Adults, Catholic Catechism for Adults. It's, it's, it was put forth by our bishops' conference back around 15 years ago or so. And then um, other uh, religious publications, Benziger Brothers or um, Ascension Press, they had the place of reference to go to in not just what the church believes, but why it believes it. The current, the big volume, and it's like three inches thick, typically it's with a green cover. Other publishing houses are putting it forth again. There's a new edition. I forget who, maybe it's maybe it's Ascension Press is putting it forward. Um, it's based, it's broken down into four parts. What the church believes, the church's prayer, um, the sacraments, so how do we grow in holiness, and then the moral life. What what so it's meant to be a systematic presentation on how to get to heaven. Okay. It's again, it's kind of like a user manual, but it's also very helpful, not just um for the points of reference, but also even just the way it's laid out. You know, I want to get to heaven. Yeah, I this is first it's faith, and then it's also these sacraments. It's um the the and the and the moral life, you know, one flows from the other. You know, sometimes Catholics, we could be like very moralistic, just avoid this sin, we can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. What it presupposes, though, is that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we always have to work on first with people in that call to conversion. We want them to convert from sin, but that is built on that relationship with Jesus Christ. How is that relationship with Jesus Christ lived out within the church and within the celebration of the sacraments. So there was a hesitancy of the church to have an, a catechism. There was a real optimism at the time of the Second Vatican Council that, see, we, we won't need rule books. We won't need points of reference. People are going to, we're going to pray for this new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and people are going to organically want to do um, the right thing and look at the entire tradition of the church. Pope St. John, uh, Pope St. Paul VI who was the bishop of Rome at the time, um, tried putting out the credo of the people of God. And then there was another sub-document, like um, catechetical touchstone. I forget what I forget what the title was. But it became very clear that maybe that rosy view of human nature was a little too rosy, and we did need that point of reference on which all, all other local catechisms like a Baltimore catechism, would be based. So um, if there's any DREs or Sunday school teachers or Catholic school teachers listening to this, do not use the Green Book as a textbook. That's not what it was meant to be, but it's meant to help prepare us on how to explain the truths of the faith on an appropriate level to our, whether they're children or people in RCIA or adult education. And a for instance of that was like the catechism, U.S. Catechism for Adults and and other related resources. That's pretty interesting. And it makes a lot of sense why growing up, I, I wasn't 
terribly familiar with it. Like I went to Catholic school, but I wasn't terribly familiar with it because I dating myself, but I was in first or second grade in 1993. Right. And I don't, I don't remember talking about it even like I graduated eighth grade in 2000. So maybe that's just something that like I put out of my head because it was like another thing that I had to learn. But um, there seems to be a a bigger push towards uh, Catholics being familiar with the catechism now, especially because I have seen like Ascension. I think that you're right that they just put out a new one and they're doing the catechism in a year. Right. Father Father Schmitz. But you touched on something that I kind of want to go back to about like the catechism being like a guidebook of like, this is how you get to heaven. Do all good people go to heaven? Like what is the difference between being good and being saved? First off, the church canonizes people. The church will say this person's in heaven. Very rarely. I don't know. Maybe, you know, um, we know the fallen angels. We believe that Judas didn't luck out very well. Very rarely does the church pronounce that this person is now in hell. <laughs> okay? I, 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 what I, I say it to people to remind them, like, we do canonize people, but we do not declare people to be in hell. Okay? Do we think there's people in hell? There's a good chance. I mean, just I, let's go on Twitter. You could find out, you know, <laughs> plenty of uh, um, <laughs> plenty of points plenty of reference. Of speculation. Plenty of yes. speculation. But so being good... And, and the church, because here's one of the problems. We say only those good Catholics go to heaven. Oh, gosh, God, hell's going to be really populated, okay? Because, you know, if there's over a little over 1 billion Catholics and there's 6 billion people on earth, chances are, like, the highway to hell is looking like I-90, I-695 around Baltimore at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, okay? So... Even And that's one of the things that the church was trying to look at at the Second Vatican Council. Like, how do we explain, knowing that we have this huge worldview now and instant communication, and we realize that there's people of goodwill, okay? Uh, by the way, in all of this, I would say as a Catholic priest, purgatory makes more and more sense. It does. Okay? Purgatory makes more and more sense that, okay, for whatever reason, why is it that a person hasn't converted? And even the church would say, is is there is there definitive reason to believe that someone who has through no fault of their own has never had the gospel proclaimed to them or what happens if they had the gospel proclaimed to them by a hypocritical priest or a baby that hadn't been baptized yet or, or anything and, like that. and and John Paul II reflected on that back in the 1990s and said listen there's hope of salvation for for these babies who babies who suffered abortion you know or um these souls that have been brought into creation, but through no fault of their own, were never baptized. You know, we have to have hope in the mercy of God, okay? We, we have to. And reason would tell us that we have to. Now, what did Jesus ordain as the, the sure hope to be baptized into him? We have to work for that. Now, that's a greater challenge for ministers of the gospel and teachers of religion and priests, deacons, bishops, that we do all we can because we're going to stand before the judgment seat and they're going to say, you know, Father, you gave up. You just wanted to run your bingo hall and a spaghetti dinner and be happy with that. And in the meanwhile, you didn't make disciples of these people. 
I'm sorry, I didn't know this is my human weakness. Well, that's why you're going to be in purgatory till the end of time, and these people will will will, will enjoy the the most mercy in the bosom of Abraham sooner than you will. I'm like, ah. Now I say that as a a point of reference, not as, for personal prayer. Like literally, I think of that not as a doctrinal teaching that you know these are people who are going to be saved. These pe- people who are not going to enjoy that salvation because they're God knows our sincerest desire of the heart. And um, being a good person is not enough. Is it? Are we having a living and active faith? Are we seeking the truth? Are the people who are already having this faith, is it a lackadaisical, presumptuous faith? Well, I'm good to go. Like, you know, people who say, Father, I want you to baptize my grandkids. I said, well, where do your grandkids live? Oh, where do they live? Uh, Illinois. Well, they, they don't live in central Pennsylvania. I mean, well, well, Father, I don't want them to go to limbo. Um, but the, baptism isn't a, isn't a get out of limbo free. If we if we, even if we did believe in limbo as a definitive teaching, which we don't, okay. Pope Benedict made that clear uh, during his pontificate. That's a challenge for us because um, there are people we, we we like to cheapen the sacraments in cheap grace and and expect baptism without a subsequent call. call to a growth in holiness. Well, Father, I, I don't want my kids... Uh, I said, listen, by me baptizing this child, I'm taking responsibility for this child's soul as well. I don't want to stand before the judgment seat and say, I made, I made Joe and Jane's grandmother happy and got her off my back and just gave out baptism and gave a responsibility to these children that I was not willing to help them with. So this is, this is where we have to you know, sacraments are not just rites of passage or, or little initiation ceremonies for various parts of cultural reference points. This is these are things that do things in the in the life and the soul of the of the of the recipient. Anyway, it's up to Jesus, and He knows the depths of our hearts and the sincerity of our faith. He knows when we're doing this in a cheapened way. He knows when we're doing this in a superstitious way. And that might come back not on maybe uh, a person who is ignorant, but maybe the person who should have known better. And and and, and that's a it's a point of sobriety because there are people just baptize the kid and get the, get him off your back. But at the same time, we do believe that it's a sacrament and it conveys grace, and that there can be an effect in the family that experiences this tremendous gift. It's really hard, isn't it? You know, am I doing this just as a cultural touch point, a, a initiation ceremony, you know, a societal initiation ceremony? Um, or are we really praying that the grace of God might transform this stony heart and turn it into a, a heart of flesh? It's hard. But the mercy of Jesus will figure it out one way or another. And I hope it's the one way <laughs> and it's his way. When you when you put it like that, it, it does make it a little bit more serious. You know, like baptism sometimes I think is, is viewed as like, like you said, like it's just, oh, it's just a rite of passage. Like it's just something that you do. But when you add that weight to it of like, this is what you're getting into. When I was in working in Hispanic ministry, the question among our uh, 
hermanos esperados, okay, our awaiting brethren, okay, the in the evangelical churches. They'd say, are you saved? Have you been saved? Yes. And yeah. and this is how a Catholic, I believe a Catholic should respond. I have been saved. I am being saved. I hope to be saved. I've been saved in the waters of baptism. In July of 1983 at St. Paul's Chapel in Atlas, when my parents, my, my aunt and uncle, my godparents presented me for baptism, I received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of baptism. And then in May of 1991, when I received First Holy Communion from Father Roman Ciola, I mean, God living in me, when Bishop Tatillo confirmed me in 1997, when Bishop Rhodes ordained me in 2009, these are all impartings of, the, of, of grace into my soul. I mean, and this is me in the process of being saved. And I hope to be saved that I, at the end of my life, I stand as a faithful minister and, and, and been, been found worthy of, of the kingdom. And, you know, God, that I keep working with that grace every day of my life. It's, it's a continual process. Um, it's not just being good. I mean, what does it mean to be good? I'm, I'm a nice person. Well, is this a living faith? Is this a faith that lifts up? Or is it just, because I know plenty. I mean, look at Congress. You know, there's what, 538 good guys that got elected somehow. And then you, you look at together, you scratch your head, and it's like, but we elected a pope sooner than they elected a speaker of the House. <laughs> Anyway, but I mean, seriously, I mean, everybody says they're a good guy doesn't mean that they're striving for holiness because we know that there's some real lousy liars in that group. Right. I mean, you learn these things. It's like, oh, people are looking at us and laughing. But what does it mean to be good? Or does it mean that God is godly, that Jesus is living within me and and that, that we're sacrificing of ourselves for others? And that's what salvation is. That's what it means to be saved both in the moment that we've accepted Christ and, and, and welcomed him into our hearts. We do that every Sunday in Holy Communion. And then when we serve in his name, because St. James tells us faith without works is dead. And to keep that at, at baptism, they're given that lighted candle. Keep this candle burning brightly, the light burning brightly until you are called home to be with the saints in the kingdom of heaven. That's beautiful. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And and it goes back to what we were saying earlier about how it's a practice. We, we practice, we are practical and practicing being Catholic and being living with Christ yes. on earth. I love that. I love that. I love that. And again, going back to something we said earlier, one of the probably biggest denominations in, in the world is former Catholics or those who have left the faith for any number of reasons, like the teachings are too hard or the church is judgmental, it's hypocritical, it doesn't accept me as I am, or for whatever reason. What would you say to those who have left about why they should consider coming back? Have you run toward the truth, or have you run away from conversion? And that's, I don't want to be judgmental, but that's just, as a priest— do I avoid this argument because I don't want to be in a protracted argument or a disagreement with parishioners about a project or about an initiative? My, my dad, God love him, was once a, in local politics, and something was going on. I said, Dad, why is the other guy that you're serving with so against everything that you do? He said, Son, if, um, if we don't do anything, nothing will go wrong. So... His perspective is he could run that nothing's gone wrong on his watch. He said, yeah, but, I mean, you're not able to alleviate the debt or work on taxes, you know, and thinking outside the box. Because my dad was an engineer. He was a problem solver, okay? And my dad would say, 
if you don't do anything, nothing will go wrong. You'll be killed by the status quo, but nothing will go wrong. And my dad was willing, to, you have to try, one of his sayings was, it doesn't cost anything to ask the question. I think so, when we walked away from the church, were you running toward another truth? Why? Was it because a priest yelled at you? I, I hear that a lot. How often do I get yelled at? How often do I get criticized? And I, I think of this, it's it's like, we look for lots of reasons, or do they become excuses? Father yelled at me, and, and is there a priest that gets in bad mood? Yeah, sadly. And I try to reassure people, most of those priests who yelled at people in confession are dead. I used to say the yellers are dead. Now people say, no, they aren't, Father, I had one. Was it because you were rationalizing away a sin? Okay. Um, that could happen. It really... If you if you left, is are you running toward a greater truth? Now, there, when Catholicism really went off the rails, I think back in the seventies and eighties. I mean, things were really weird. You hear stories like priests running away with the nuns in the. I mean, I heard these stories like the priest ran away with the nun. They, you know, left and like, what happened? And they got married and calls in the question people's faith and then the priests are up in the pulpit saying you know the resurrection is just a myth and rosary's idolatry i mean heard all these stories in our own diocese and and that shook people's faith okay you're right or insipid homilies where i i, I remember a co-worker at a, one of my high schools saying father every i went back to my mother's church for christmas and he told a stupid christmas story he said nothing about the birth of jesus or uh, anything spiritual it was a stupid story that he told for the third year in a row, why do I keep going back to that church? Because it's just in the neighborhood. Like, I try to think of, reflect, and okay, you're running away from an, in, a, a, pre, a lazy priest or a lousy preacher. Have you tried to, you got to tell me that oh, social media amplifies this. All the priests that I know are boring dullards who, let's face it, the Catholic people would say this, the Catholic clergy in the United States are a bunch of uninspired knaves. And then I'd say, how many of the 41,000 priests in the United States of America do you know? Every one of the parishes I've ever been a part of, how many of the 19,000 parishes have you been a part of? And it might be that in their deanery, they have a bunch of goobers. I'll, I'll admit that, you know, because I travel around the country as a vocation director and you realize it's like, wow, I really believe in the Diocese of Harrisburg. We have good priests. Someone I met with last week said, Father, your interaction was a new Catholic. And he said, your interaction with the pastor, just, it was so heartwarming because, you know, it, it was like, you really, and he said, you're, I, I go around to the other churches in this town and every priest celebrates Mass very reverently. And I was always told by the ministers in my former denomination that Catholics don't really believe that they're just going through motions. But like all the priests here, like, you know, you're very reverent and, and very reflective in your homilies. I'm, I, I don't know what to tell you. And if there's any priests listening to this, if the, any priest made it to the end of this podcast, I, th I think of this all the time, is how I'm preaching or ministering, drawing people towards Christ. And I say to people who are hurt by ministers of the church, I'm very sorry. As a vocation director, I try to share with our seminarians the great responsibility they have with being men of integrity and of faith and of holiness. 
because there's that human element that we have to cultivate in ourselves to help bring people back as bridges of the truth. You know, but are you running away from a hurt? Like, if I ran away every time someone insulted me, I, I need new sneakers every week. You know, because we could be punching bags at times. Mm-hmm. Like, if if I w- if I was as direct to people as people were to me, I mean, they'd I Bishop be getting letters. <laughs> you know, like oh, this priest was direct. Well, I just gave it right back to him or her. You know, I, but there's also the cross. Sometimes that cross of misunderstanding we have to bear. But I mean, I know that there's lots of reasons people have left. Have they taken a second chance? Get the you, you you weren't being fed in the scripture studies in a, in the Catholic Church, Little Rock Bible Study. The resources now, I think we're at a, a St. Paul Institute of Biblical Studies. A lot of our priests make use of their clergy retreats and workshops. I think that we're at a very stronger point now, largely because of the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Right now, to the current day, through our current Holy Father Pope Francis, that there's this beautiful treasure of spiritual teaching that I think is newly appreciated. That's a great way to think about it. It's, it's, it might not be the church that you remember. And you had one, you know, not to say that all bad experiences are equal, but there's a, there's a, a grace in second chances. So when I was my, in my first assignment at St. Francis Xavier Church in Gettysburg, so Gettysburg's a famous town, right? Lots of tourists any given weekend. And Father Pistoni, who's a great mentor of mine, he wanted to put advertisements in the newspaper, come back to the Church of Your Youth, because he recognized so many children of our parishioners, older parishioners might have been in other local denominations and churches, you know, other Christian denominations. Come back to the Church of Your Youth. And I'd say, Father, that's a bad idea. They left the church of their youth for a reason because it was it was a church which was irrelevant. It was focused on whatever old cause. And in America, it's the, the politics is ugly where people say, well, if if you're a good conservative, you gotta be a member of this denomination. If you're a good liberal, you gotta be a member of this denomination. And the church really, if you even look at the social teaching, it, it's we we're not easily pinned down. It's like trying to staple jello to a wall. You know, it, it could insult both political parties in the United States. Okay, and people don't always appreciate that. And I'd say to them, Father, people do, don't invite them to the church of their youth. They left that for a reason. Now that they've matured, and we're on a better, we're at a better sta- standing point, I think, as a church, in in our own identity of what we believe, in our both in our moral teaching about the sacred scriptures, about the sacraments. We've, I think, we're more authentic now than we were 50 years ago. I think we have a better certainty of, you know, who we are as Catholic Christians and how that's lived out in the 21st century than we did 50 years ago. That's a really great point. Well, Father Sorky, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Rachel, for the opportunity. This was this was very educational and very valuable, and I am really excited for everybody to hear it. So thank you. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online 
at hbgdiocese.org slash DAC and clicking the Make a Donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.